online. Welcome to Catholic View on this Friday evening. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Sheila Pirish. Coming up in today's broadcast, we'll be talking about the World Humanitarian Day, observed annually on the 19th of August. But first, as usual, we begin with some of the stories that made headlines in the Catholic Church and in Africa today. So do stay tuned. Hi, I'm Archbishop Peter Wells, Apostolic Nuncio. Thank you for listening to Radio Veritas, the good news for a change. In your headlines this Friday evening, Pope Francis prays for Barcelona and Portugal accident in Madeira victims. Mass burials begin, leader vows Sierra Leone will rise again. And Dlamina Zuma speaks on the Grace Mugabe incident. Good evening once again, I'm Sheila Pirish. Spanish police say they have killed five people in the town of Cambrils to stop a second attempted van attack after an earlier one in Barcelona killed more than 13 people and injured dozens. Stefan Bors reports that authorities say both attacks appear to have been organized by the same group and that the Spanish prime minister has declared three days of mourning. People panic as the resort town of Cambrils turns briefly into a war zone. Spanish police shoot and kill five suspects who are apparently carrying bomb belts. Security forces rush to the scene after at least seven people, including a police officer, were wounded when a car was driven into a group early on Friday. One was in critical condition. Spanish media reported that the attacker's vehicle overturned and when the men got out, they were quickly fired upon by police. A series of controlled explosions was then carried out in this town, some 120 kilometers, or 102 miles, south of Barcelona, where more than a dozen people were killed in a separate attack. In Barcelona, ambulances and other emergency services vehicles were seen speeding through the streets after a van drove into crowds of pedestrians at Las Ramblas, in the city center late Thursday. The Islamic State group was quick to claim responsibility for the attack in Barcelona. It said its soldiers carried out the operation in response to calls for targeting coalition states, referring to a United States-led coalition against the Sunni militant group. Witness Francisco Centeno described what happened. Uh, you know, they were just crying, you know, cops just bringing people out. I, I saw a settled gentleman uh, lead a group of people out. And, you know, the way we were walking, all of a sudden we're caught in this crowd of people and we're walking out the direction, kind of in a, in a bit of flood of people. Um, and there's just people screaming and crying around us. So uh, we knew not to walk toward that direction. It was very obvious. So. The authorities are now linking the attacks in Barcelona and the later one in Cambrils with an explosion at a house on Wednesday evening in the town of Alcenar that left one person dead. Police were continuing to search for the driver of the van used in the Barcelona attack who fled on foot. Police also released a photo of a man named as Dries Abakir, whose documents were used to rent the van involved in the attack. 
However, latest reports say the Morocco-born man, who is in his 20s, told police he was not involved and that his documents were stolen. Spain's Prime Minister Mariano Rayo has called it a jihadist attack and declared three days of mourning across Spain. Meanwhile, the director of the Holy See Press Office, Greg Burke, has said that Pope Francis was greatly disturbed by what had happened in Barcelona. He also said that the Pope prayed for the victims and expressed his closeness to the Spanish people, in particular the injured and the families of the victims. Pope Francis expressed his deepest sympathy for the victims of Thursday's terrorist attack on Barcelona's Las Ramblas Boulevard, with a telegram sent to the city's archbishop. Cardinal Juan Jose Omeya. It was signed by the Secretary of State, Cardinal Pietro Parolin. Pope Francis condemned the blind violence of this attack, saying it is a grave offence towards the Creator. He prayed for those who lost their lives to such an inhuman act. In these moments of sorrow and pain, the Pope said he wishes also to offer his sympathy and closeness to the many injured, to their families, and to all Catalan and Spanish society. Turning to the future, Pope Francis said he raises his prayers to the Most High, that he help us continue to work with determination for peace and harmony in our world. Finally, the Holy Father imparted his apostolic blessing upon all the victims, their families, and the beloved Spanish people. And in a statement released shortly after the terrorist attack in Barcelona, the Spanish Bishops' Conference strongly condemned all terrorism and offered prayers for the victims. Davin Watkins reports. The bishops of Spain have condemned Thursday's terrorist attack in Barcelona's city center, which killed at least 13 people and injured more than a hundred others. In a statement released shortly after the terrorist attack in Barcelona on Thursday, the Spanish Bishops' Conference strongly condemned all terrorism and offered prayers for the victims. They called it a mournful and detestable act. The Spanish Bishops' Conference wishes the statement reads, first of all, to express its solidarity and prayer for all the victims and their families. We also convey our support for the whole of society under attack by these actions, in this case the citizens of Barcelona, as well as for the security forces. The Spanish bishops went on to condemn every demonstration of terrorism as an intrinsically perverse practice, completely incompatible with a just, reasonable, and moral view of life. Terrorism, they say, not only gravely infringes the right to life and liberty, but is also an example of the most terrible form of intolerance and totalitarianism. Turning to the victims of Thursday's attack, the bishops invite all the faithful to pray that God grant them eternal rest and that he return the injured to health and grant consolation to their families. Finally, the Spanish bishops pray that these despicable actions may never be repeated. World leaders have also condemned the terrorist attack in Barcelona. U.S. President Donald Trump tweeted condolences and U.S. Vice President Mike Pence said the United States stands ready to assist the people of Spain. And as the president said earlier today, the United States condemns this terror attack and we will do whatever is necessary to help. Whatever inspired today's terror attack, the United States stands ready to assist the people of Spain and find and punish those responsible. On this dark day, our prayers and the prayers of all the American people are with the victims, their families, and the good people of Spain.
Pope Francis has sent his condolences to the victims of a tragic accident on the Portuguese island of Madeira, in which 13 people died and nearly 50 were injured. A tree fell on a group of Catholic faithful as they prepared to participate in a procession to celebrate the solemnity of the Assumption of the Virgin Mary on Tuesday. Pope Francis conveyed his grief for the loss of life to Bishop José Carrillo of Funchal in a telegram signed by Cardinal Secretary of State Pietro Parolin. On to African news, Sierra Leone's government began burying more than 400 people killed earlier this week in mudslides in the country's capital, Freetown. More than 400 people were killed on Monday when a torrent of mud swept away homes on the edge of Freetown and around 600 people remain missing. Lara Purvis is an emergency response officer with the UK-based Catholic Relief Agency, CAFOD, a member of the Caritas Network. She spoke to Lydia O'Kane about the needs on the ground and the threat of disease. So I think the immediate needs for the people at the moment are kind of um, shelter and protection from the elements, non-food items to, um, you know, to help them to be able to recover in the very first stages of the emergency. But aid agencies and capital partners are concerned about the potential health implications of this crisis. So, uh, you know, with, with, with the flooding potentially contaminating water sources, you know, potentially that, that water is going to be dangerous for people. Uh, there are concerns about the spread of kind of waterborne diseases such as, as, as cholera and diarrhea and so on, which will again exacerbate the situation um, and place those people in even more need than they already are. There's also a lot of people that haven't even been accounted for. There are a lot of people that would be missing. Obviously, the displacement would be vast. That's right. So um, they're saying at the moment, I think it's about uh, 2,000 people who have been displaced. But obviously, uh, the situation is, is very fluid at the moment because of access and the continuing rains. People have been unable to you know, really get the relief effort up and going. Um, and so they are still recovering bodies and, and uh, looking for missing people. So at the moment, I think... Uh, we're not quite sure of what the full gravity of the situation is as yet, although clearly from what we're hearing so far, it is very serious indeed. Would you say that lessons have been learned from past events, past mudslides, past natural disasters that would help them put into place a plan for something like this? Yes, yeah, so the, the humanitarian sector as a whole is you know, continually learning and reflecting from previous responses. It, on this occasion, there was quite a big focus on preparedness planning um, and trying to ensure that agencies were pre-positioning themselves to be able to provide a response as quickly as possible, which I think is some of the key learnings from previous responses. So it's a bit of an on, ongoing process in terms of those, those learnings. The UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, has warned that the number of people from South Sudan seeking refuge in Uganda has reached 1 million. An average of 1,800 South Sudanese civilians have been crossing into Uganda every day during the past year. Another 1 million or more South Sudanese are being hosted by Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, the Democratic Republic of the Congo and the Central African Republic. UNHCR says many of them have witnessed barbaric acts of violence carried out by armed groups, such as the sexual assault of women and girls and the kidnapping of boys for forced drafting. UNHCR spokesperson for East Africa, Teresa Ongaro, says a funding shortfall is affecting the delivery of aid. One million simply illustrates the heavy burden that is resting on the shoulders of the government and the people of Uganda. 
we continue to host refugees from different countries and to keep their borders open. Today, UNHCR has reiterated its call to the international community for urgent additional support for this situation and indeed for Uganda to continue hosting refugees who really have no other option than to seek asylum in this country. What are the main challenges you're facing as UNHCR and the international community, especially to help Uganda cope with this burden? The main challenges are quantified in U.S. dollar terms. We have uh, an appalled $674 million for South Sudanese refugees this year, and so far only 20% has been received. Now, that translates into an inability for aid agencies to provide basic assistance I'll give you an example. The World Food Program was forced in June to cut food rations for refugees. And across settlements in northern Uganda, health clinics are being forced to provide vital medical care with too few doctors, healthcare workers, and medicine. These health inputs are provided by the government of Uganda, and the hospitals and clinics are also the same ones that serve Ugandan nationals. So you can imagine the pressures that the presence of refugees are putting on these public resources. In terms of education, class sizes often exceed 200 pupils, and often uh, lessons are held in the open air. And uh, many refugee children are dropping out of school because the places of learning are too far away for them to easily access. So the dilemma is that priority has to be given to new arrivals in terms of moving them away from the border, identifying people with special needs like the elderly, the people who are have physical disabilities, people who are chronically ill, and that diverts resources from support programs like education. And as I said, even the existing services are overwhelmed. Officials said yesterday that a Kenyan police monitor has begun investigating at least 28 deaths following last week's disputed elections, and investigators already attended the autopsies of a young girl and a baby allegedly killed by the police. Parents of a six-month-old Samantha Pendo said she was tear-gassed and battered by police who invaded their home. Masharian Chero, head of the government-funded but civilian-run Independent Police Oversight Authority, IPOA, told Reuters in an interview that IPOA is fast-tracking investigations of all deaths and injuries attributed to the police following the elections. The Angola National Electoral Commission has registered at least 150,000 party agents, SADC observers, civil society members and journalists ahead of the forthcoming general elections next Wednesday. The national news agency ANGOP says Commission President Andre de Silva Neto has revealed the information in Babuda's town in the northern province of Bengal. It says he has addressed delegates to a ceremony to launch a new building of the Bengal Provincial Electoral Commission, saying accreditation is going on smoothly. Mr. Neto also says our logistics are now in place for the success of the operation and the distribution of the ballot material to the polling stations in all localities. Back home, former AU chair Nkosazana Dlamini-Zuma says women's capability to lead should not be judged by the Grace Mugabe's incident, who has been accused of assaulting South African model Gabriela Echels and is requesting diplomatic immunity. 
The former AU chair added that the behavior of one woman should not be allowed to taint all women. Dlamini Zuma was speaking at the launch of her book about her time at the AU. I just think women are capable, whether one beats another, which is wrong and must, the law must take its course, but women are capable. They cannot be judged on that. You see this sexism even on the roads. A woman makes a mistake. You see these women drivers. Men make mistakes even more than women. But nobody says, look at these men drivers. So we are sexist. We are in a patriarchal society and we must get out of it. And finally, young people can do anything they set their minds to, said Winnie Michaels, a delegate from Kenya. Nearly 1,000 young leaders, changemakers and entrepreneurs from more than 100 countries were in New York for the 20th session of the Youth Assembly held on 12 August International Youth Day. Miss Michaels was joined by Miss Tourism Kenya, Maureen Soro, who gave the following advice to young people in their country. There's a lot of opportunities. There's so much to learn. There's so much to gain. Believe in whatever they want to do, whatever they they intend to do. Make good connections and just know where you belong in terms of what you're trying to achieve. And with that, you can do anything you set your mind to do. And I would want to say that they should also get involved with the government um, work so that they can get access to the resources they need to propel themselves in, in future. So mm. definitely I'm looking forward to see my Kenyan youth uh, moving forward each and every time. Uh, how about those who are in the uh, rural areas? Uh, they, are, they are so much, they, they, are, they don't have opportunities like those are in town areas. What's your message to them? Uh, basically that's the reason why I'm here, to actually represent the youth who are actually in the village, if I can say, who have no access to better education, no access to electricity, no access to all that. And uh, back home I realized that there's so much knowledge, there's so much skills for uh, that the youth back in the uh, village have. So they just need to know how to work around this knowledge that they have. And we're here to like help them out to be able to uh, use what they have to um, make their environment or to gain what they need to gain in their own uh, locations. Mm-hmm. So basically they should use their own skills and with the help of people who are able, they will definitely make it. I was saying, let the youths be a voice to the voiceless, and that is what I'm doing here today. Mm-hmm. For the youths who are unemployed, we know we have uh, around uh, 17.3% of the youths who are able to work but are unemployed. And what can they do to sustain their self or rather give them a living back in Kenya today? We know that Kenya has been pointed out as uh, youths having creative minds. You can see in social media, anything that happens, pop, you see the youths creating up something. And uh, this shows that Kenya, we have the opportunity. But what we lack is the platform. And the platform is what we are looking for. And also we are trying to talk so that we can be given most or rather many opportunities for the youths so that they can have something else to do and something else to showcase that can earn them a living. And that was a look at some of the stories that made headlines in the Catholic Church and in Africa today.
You're listening to Catholic View, a program produced and presented by Sheila Pirsch for Radio Veritas. Thank you so much for joining me this Friday evening. Now, coming up next, we'll be talking about World Humanitarian Day. Providing humanitarian aid today to the world's needy is a fantastic investment in the future. Now, that's according to the UN Relief Chief Stephen O'Brien, speaking ahead of World Humanitarian Day marked each 19th August. The focus of this year's event is the targeting of civilians and humanitarian workers who are caught up in violent conflict around the world. The hashtag NotATarget campaign highlights the vulnerable who are trapped in wars, not of their own making, and calls for more robust protection of the right of medical workers who have been deliberately attacked in places such as Syria and Yemen. Mr. O'Brien spoke to Matt Wells. Well, I'm very, very keen that we should make sure that we put a, a real focus on how humanitarian aid workers right around the world wherever they come from they are not a target this was something which was very strongly articulated at the world humanitarian summit uh, which took place in may 2016 in istanbul which brought together the world the stakeholders for humanitarian affairs right across and one of the main uh, issues that we uh, wanted to put out uh, as a result of that was how the protection of aid workers, and particularly in the medical uh, field, are absolutely paramount. People are putting themselves at great risk, uh, often with enormous skills, uh, to reach people in need in some of the most dangerous environments in protracted crises right around the world. And at the moment, uh, humanitarians are, are operating in something like 40 countries, uh, across the world and uh, they are often there for many many years despite often insuperable difficulties for others to be able to reach them. Now last year you asked the great Nagood assembled uh, here at UN headquarters to, to act with courage and conviction, did they? Well I think it's fair to say that at every point there is forward, there is forward momentum. So yes, whether it's member states, whether it's humanitarian aid workers, whether it's those of us who are engaged in uh, the coordination of uh, making sure humanitarian relief uh, reaches those who need it most. All of us have continued to apply uh, a, a sense of strength and determination and absolute courage and conviction because there is, to be completely clear, there is no higher international public good than seeking to save the lives and protect the civilians who, through no fault of their own, find themselves caught up in crisis. This is a set of mutual interests, mutual obligations. It underpins the values we have as fellow human beings uh, on this planet. And I think that it's very important in World Humanitarian Day that we give people the chance, the space and the focus just to pause, to give these ideas the thought that they deserve to underpin and support uh, those who are going to be able to carry out this work. The um, hashtag not a target campaign focuses on vulnerable civilians and as you've just said that the, the humanitarian workers who are doing so much to try and provide help and protection but isn't the, isn't the problem for the UN that there's little more that we can do than to try to persuade perpetrators of violence and war and power hungry politicians to just change their ways? Of course it's about persuasion and we should never give up, we should never be deterred. Yes there will be knockbacks, yes more disputes, more terrible conflict, more terrible violence will occur 
uh, both within and between uh, peoples and states. But what we have to be absolutely clear about is that it is worth the effort every day to try and save lives and to uh, make sure that we are protecting civilians, particularly in conflict. But also remember that there is a, a real need to uh, recognise that we have the capacity to make a difference, but it requires both political will, yes, it requires resources of the willing, and it requires access and for us to have relationships with all the various players so that we can have access to meet the people uh, of need. You said that there's never enough funding. I mean, how do we stop a sense of hopelessness, if not cynicism, from creeping in and overwhelming us uh, on, on the humanitarian front? This is a fantastic investment. We know that if you leave humanitarian need or poverty unaddressed, it has the potential to be exploited by those of malign intent, of those who are not interested in the peace, security and the individual growth and community and family growth of people around the world. It's absolutely vital that we recognise that we don't address it today. The higher cost in the future will simply be there to be borne by future generations. So we owe it to future generations as well as to ourselves for a safer, secure world. So it's in all our mutual interests to not only in the cause of peace and security, but also uh, in the values of doing the right thing by our fellow human beings, because by doing that we are likely uh, to have the best chance of making a more peaceful, uh, more prosperous, a more dignified, and a, a world which is going to be one where uh, everybody gets the chance uh, to live out their potential. Michael O'Riordan, a Catholic humanitarian official, spoke about the ongoing severe food and hunger crisis in South Sudan and about the challenges and rewards of his job. O'Riordan is the emergency program manager in South Sudan for CAFOD, the Catholic Church's aid agency for England and Wales, and its Irish counterpart, Trokaira. His remarks coincide with World Humanitarian Day celebrated each year on August 19th and which pays tribute to aid workers who often risk their own lives to bring help to millions of needy people across the globe. The celebration is also to rally support for people affected by crises around the world. Oriadon was interviewed by Susie Hodges. Has the threat of famine in South Sudan receded at all, or is it still very much there? Unfortunately, the threat is very much still there. But across the whole country, the level of food insecurity has actually increased with very significant numbers of the population really relying on the humanitarian aid coming in from the very different aid agencies. The problems are around not just the ongoing insecurity, which um, plagued the country last year, preventing people from planting and collecting their harvests at that time. But also at this time, uh, there is a big concern with regards to access uh, with the rainy season, being able to get into people, with them having planted their fruits, their, their, their crops, they're now having to wait until they come, and they're utterly reliant on the fruits coming from the various aid agencies. In some of the worst affected areas, just how bad is the health situation of the population? Do you see very visible signs of malnutrition, and I imagine especially amongst the children? Indeed, and that is one of the most uh, traumatic things 
everywhere we go, people being visited under nourished uh, very thin, emaciated uh, in some of the areas that uh, are more cut off. The children in the acute malnutrition rates are very, very high. It is also compounded by the fact that there is still an ongoing cholera outbreak since last year. We have not been able to stop this cholera outbreak, and now with the rainy season, there's a real concern that it will expand again. And this is then going to have a bigger impact on people who are already weakened from hunger, whose own immunities will not be up to being able to we're in the year 2017 and yet the world is witnessing no fewer than about four famines in different parts of the world, probably more, and an unprecedented number of people who are displaced and who are in need of humanitarian aid. What does this say? Unfortunately, I think that this is a reflection of a number of different things that we're seeing across the world. One of them is there seems to be an apathy in what I would call the Western world and the more developed parts of the world who are starting to look more inward into their own needs, into their own communities, and are not being as forthcoming with aid and assistance as they might have been in, in earlier years and maybe in earlier generations. I think also that there is an impact we're seeing from the likes of social media, the readily available images that are coming on the screens and on computers as people see on their Twitter and on YouTube as well as the various different media. And in many ways I feel that they're possibly being bombarded with so many images that they're almost becoming inured to it. And this is having an impact for times of crisis like this when we are asking for support as aid agencies and as humanitarian organizations to help these people, I feel that there has been maybe a lessening of the sympathy towards the plight of others in many parts of the Western developed world. Turning to the humanitarian workers themselves, people like you, who are often putting your lives on the line going into conflict-ridden areas, what for you are the rewards of this job? Oh, it is seeing the difference that our assistance makes when you go to somewhere. The simple gratitude of people who may have felt that the world had forgotten them. When you're able to go in, when you're able to deliver even the small things, bringing toys to children, bringing simple things like soap, towels, the things that you and I might take for granted living in, in our own country. When you see the gratitude of people's faces, that for me is really what this is all about. It is that connection between one person and another person. And humanitarian aid. It's not just giving out food, is it? It's giving hope to people. That, that I feel, is perhaps the most important part of humanitarian aid, but the least seen one. It is that people know that they're there, that they know there is support, they're not abandoning them, and that gives them some measure of hope and some measure of confidence in the future, that they will have a future, that there is something out there to work towards and I was speaking there to Michael O'Riordan, who works for the Catholic aid agencies CAFOD and Trocara.
And this has been your Friday's edition of Catholic View, a program produced and presented by Sheila Pierce for Radio Veritas. Thank you so much for listening. Should you wish to get in touch with me, feel free to send me an email. That's Sheila at radioveritas.co.za. I'll be back again on Tuesday at the same time. Until then, do have a blessed weekend and keep warm. God bless you and ciao, ciao. I'm Sheila Pierce.